Well, we're in the middle of a series that we're calling Prayers of the People. And it really is we who are in the middle of this series. And it really is we who are preaching this series on the Prayers of the People. Aaron and Danny have led this series off. And I am now just jumping in midstream and uh, really excited about what these guys have preached about. If you're unfamiliar on our website and on iTunes, we have a podcast. And as I did these last couple of weeks, if you miss a Sunday, you can go on and listen to that sermon. And I can attest that it works. The technology is up to speed. And, uh, and it really works. And these guys have preached wonderful sermons over the last couple of weeks. Um, and so we're carrying on with it, the prayers of the people. And as Michelle led us, this, this title really for this sermon series comes from this liturgical practice that has been carried on in the Church of Jesus Christ for a long, long time in which the church celebrates the fact that it isn't just one pastor or one leader who, who has access to God, but it is the people of God who can come before him in prayer, who not only can come before him in prayer, but who must, who are called and invited to come before the Lord in prayer. And so we're learning about that and, and uh, wanting to, to grow in our prayer. And it struck me just even last night, though, that anytime we preach about praying, we need to pray about preaching. And so I just invite you to continue to be in prayer for me, even in these moments, and for our preachers as we carry on through this service. This is one of the, like the high points, the, the, the highlights of, of the Christian life, and we want to make sure that we get it right, <laughs> that we, when we talk about prayer, we talk about it in such ways that are, that are not only inspiring and uplifting, but are informing and shaping for the people of God. So let's continue to not only preach about prayer, but to pray about preaching. I want to read for us this morning from the book of Acts, chapter 4. If you have your Bible, uh, turn there with me. Would you, Acts chapter 4, um, even if it's a different translation than the one that I read from, I'd love for you to have that passage open so you can refer back to it because we're going to look at some of the context uh, around surrounding the passage that I'll read. <clears throat> I'm only going to read verses 23 to the end of the chapter, verse 37. Uh, but we'll be referring back to it. So if you have that, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Let's stand, can we, as I read this? I'll pick up there, as I said, in verse 23. It'll be on the screen if you need to follow it along there. That's fine. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, now this is a quote from Psalm 2. Why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against His Messiah. In fact, the prayer continues, this has happened here in this very city for Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus. 
your holy servant whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after this prayer, the meeting place shook. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they preached the Word of God with boldness. And all the believers were united in heart and mind. And they, they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. And the apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus, and he sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can have a seat. So Yogi Berra was uh, a baseball player, and uh, it's been a few weeks since you heard a baseball story perhaps, so you need one. Uh, He played for the New York Yankees in a long career, almost 19 seasons in the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, and really Yogi Berra is why, and by the way, I said Yogi Berra, not Yogi Bear for you cartoon fans, different people, different, Anders, Yogi Berra, Yogi Bear. Okay, Yogi Berra we're talking about right now. And, uh, and he widely thought of as one of the greatest catchers, one of the greatest baseball men in baseball history. And, and is just known for his playing, for his talent, but also for his coaching. He managed and won World Series, appeared in several All-Star games, was just a wonderful catcher. But Yogi is also known very famously for his Yogi-isms, his paradoxical, pithy statements that, that if you have never heard of Yogi Berra, you've probably heard some of his, his yogi-isms. And I have a few that uh, you might recognize. One was this, it ain't over till it's over. And he said that when his team was behind by nine runs in the ninth inning and they came back to win it. It's, it ain't over till it's over. That was yogi. This is one, another one of my favorites. 90% of the game is half mental. Not, not a, a baseball player, not a mathematician. Um, another one is this. Um, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. So he was giving directions to somebody and coming to a fork in the road, go ahead and take it. And then uh, this one, at when two of his teammates hit back-to-back home runs, he said, it's like deja vu all over again. Yogiisms, you can use those, or maybe not. But the story is told that I want to get to this morning about Yogi playing a game in which the score was tied 2-2 two to two in the bottom of the ninth inning. Runner's on, and the batter comes to the plate to hit, and Yogi is in his catcher's position behind the plate. And, and the batter, as he approaches the plate, he reaches out with his bat, and he makes a sign of the cross on the plate. Yogi being a good Catholic, but also a good baseball player, 
slowly reached out with his catcher's glove and wiped the cross off the plate and looked up at the pious batter and said, let's just let God watch this game. What do you say? I think that's outstanding theology for baseball games. I think any athletic event, I'm one who's a little bit turned off by people who pray for victory or who give God thanks for the victory that we had out there today. I think God's just a big fan of everybody and loves to watch and enjoy the, these crazy little humans playing these funny games. And uh, he, he, he loves it. But, but I, bad theology, I think, when it com- or great theology when it comes to 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 sporting events or other kind of activities like this. Let's just let God watch this one. What do you say? It's really bad theology, however, when it comes to the lives that we lead as the people of God, both as individuals and especially the life that we lead together as the body of Christ, as the community of faith. And yet how often, we might not say it, but how often do we live it that we're just going to let God watch this one? if that's okay with you. Instead of prayerfully inviting God to be a part of the action, to be the leader in this mission, to be the one who is involved and who is equipping and who is guiding and who is teaching and who is helping uh, to inspire us, we leave him sort of standing on the sidelines. Or, Or worse yet, up in the up in the bleachers or in in the in the nosebleed section to just kind of Watch on from where he sits. If you stop and think about it for just a moment, it is crazy. It is crazy how in our lives and how in the life of a church, uh, prayer can constantly and so easily get nudged to the side. Amidst all the, the busyness and amidst all the activity and all the events and all the announcements and all the groups and the classes and the teaching, amidst all this stuff that we need to do, how easy it is for prayer to get pushed to the side, neglected, minimized. We just have too much to do to have time to pray. Perhaps we uh, intentionally push God to the sidelines. We got this. We can do this on our own is maybe one of our, our, our thoughts, one of the slogans that we have in our minds. But more likely, we don't do it intentionally. But just over time, we begin to live and operate more and more as if we are on our own in this world. It's us. Maybe the people around us. God's a mere spectator in the stands. A great quote from a guy named Samuel Chadwick. He was a a Methodist pastor in the late 19th and early 20th century. I have it here for you on the screen. He he said this, The one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from praying. He, He fears nothing from our prayerless work or prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom but he trembles when we pray. And you just leave that up there for a moment. So believing that we need to do more than just let God watch our lives, believing that the devil's one concern is to keep the saints from praying and that our prayerless 
work and our prayerless religion is all wasted effort, we're working our way through this series on great prayers from the scriptures. Um, we're, we're believing that, that he trembles when we pray. And so we're taking a look at, at these great prayers. We're believing that prayer is not just an extra in the life of the believer, but it's an essential part of who we are. And it's an essential part of who we are as a community of faith. And so we're looking at these stories, hoping to inspire each of us, hoping to lift us as a community to a heightened awareness of the significance of prayer and highlight, again, as we've been saying over these last couple of weeks, highlight some of the ways in which God's people have prayed for centuries, which God's people have, have, have come before the Lord, have accessed Him in prayer, giving us some patterns and some examples to follow. So Aaron talked about Samuel's prayer a couple of weeks ago, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Danny talked about Habakkuk's prayer from the depths of his pain and, and suffering as ways of helping us to know how we can, can and should approach the Lord in prayer. Today I want to give some focus, as we read in Acts already, um, to the whole idea of prayer as being at the center of the work and mission of the church. Not just individually, but now, but corporately, as the body of Christ. What are we doing? How are we living this out as a people? And what part does, play, does prayer have to do with us, with this? Um, I want us to be sure and understand before we leave here today that according to Scripture, prayer is not just something that we do in our private, quiet time. It's not just something that we do before meals or before we fall asleep at night. Prayer is, is an essential part of what it means to live together as God's people. It's the common language of God's people. It's to be our highest priority. It's the activity that has the potential to unite us more than anything and to give us a shared vision and a shared mission and purpose in the world. Uh, ben Patterson writes, I, I don't think I have this quote. I have another one, but you can take that one down. He writes this, for many, the prayer meeting is unnecessary as long as individuals are praying in their own homes or on their own time. We just kind of think that, well, I'm praying at home, I'm praying before my meals, I pray every morning when I wake up, that's good enough. But Patterson writes, what's missed is that most of what the Bible says about prayer is addressed, really, to groups of people, to, to, to communities meeting as groups to pray. So what does Scripture have to say about our prayer life? together. What, what does scripture really say to us? It turns out plenty, and we're going to just scratch the surface this morning. The book of Acts, from which we read, is filled with examples of God's people praying. People pray as they're gathered in the upper room, as Jesus has ascended from them. This is the book of Acts is post-resurrection. Jesus has died. Jesus has been raised again, and now at the very beginning of the book of Acts, he is, he is ascended into heaven. People wait, they're instructed to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and so they pray in the upper room waiting for the, for the Holy Spirit to fall upon them. The disciples pray, Stephen prays as he becomes, be, prepares to become the first Christian martyr. The apostle Paul prays as he comes to faith in the Lord. The church prays, the gift of the Holy Spirit is given. The church prays and people are sent out in mission. The church prays and people are released from prison. The church prays and people are healed. Cripples are made to, to walk, blind see. 
The church prays and the church grows and its influence expands and its mission reaches to the far extent of the known world. In the passage we've read, the church prays this time for courage and for boldness in the face of persecution and pressure. Now look back at your Bibles. If you have them, you can take a look at those first 22 verses that really where we picked up is just a, a, like, a, like the, the, the cap, the cherry on top really of what's happened at the beginning of the, of the chapter in chapter 4. Throughout verse, verses 1 through 22, we read this amazing story about how Peter and John, these disciples who have gone out now preaching after the Holy Spirit has come upon them, they, they're out preaching the gospel and they're, they're, they're confronted by the religious leaders and they're uh, arrested and they're accused and they're brought before the religious leaders in sort of this trial. They're, they're put in jail overnight and then they're brought back out to see these religious leaders and answer their questions And then they're asked, by what authority are you doing this? And they've healed a crippled man. And by what authority are you preaching this? And Peter's the spokesman, of course. And Peter speaks up and he says, we do this by the authority of Jesus Christ, the one who was killed and who was raised. He doesn't take any credit. He doesn't take any blame. He doesn't take anything to himself at all. He instantly passes it on to Jesus as he stands before these religious leaders. And they sort of look back at him, and they look at John, and they say, well, you can't do that. And Peter and John say, well, who says we can't? And there's this interesting exchange, if you look at that, and, and finally they say, they, they send them out of the room, and the religious leaders kind of all huddle together, and you can sense, we don't get a full explanation of that conversation, but you can kind of picture them standing around in that circle as Peter and John are over there, and they're like, so what are we going to do with them? I don't know, what are we going to do with them? Well... They healed in Jesus' name. The man that was crippled is standing. He's right here. I mean, the people, 5,000 of them, just gave their hearts to Jesus and put their faith in him. This Christian movement is expanding. If we put them in jail, there will probably be a riot. If we let them go, they'll just keep preaching and our movement will crumble. I mean, they, they were in a circle looking at each other and they had no answers. And so they called Peter and John back and they said, okay, we talked about it. And you can go, but you can't preach. And Peter looked back at them for the final time and said, you really think that we're going to listen to you and instead of God? That's not going to happen, but thank you very much. And they left. That's verses 1 through 22, the James translation. Not the King James the James translation. What I want us to notice coming out of that, that scene, that story, that situation, is that when they left, they immediately went to the community of believers. I don't know what I would have done if I were Peter and John, Peter and John but I might, have, I might have gone home and taken a nap. I, I don't know. There's a few other things that I may have done, but they went straight to the community of believers. And what I really, really want us to notice is what they did as they gathered with the community of believers in that initial moment of being together. Think of all the things that they could have done when they came and began to meet with these people, when they came from this this, this trial and this night in jail and this accusation and these threats. Think of all they could have done. They, they, They could have come with these people and just right off the bat just partied. I mean, they could have just said, that's right. Peter and John are back. They're still going to preach. Take that, religious leaders. 
Watch me whip, watch me nay-nay. I mean, they could have just, just gone to town right in this, this, this scene, just excited about what was going on in the, the, the situation. They had been released, and they were going to continue to, to, to proclaim and preach the gospel, but they didn't party. On the other extreme, they could have just panicked. I mean, as they came back and began to report to the people what had happened, the, the whole group of believers in that room could have said, well, wait a second, they put you in jail? Uh, they, they threatened you? They accused you? Uh, maybe this could happen again to you, and maybe this could happen not only to you, but this could happen to us. And they, they could have just packed up all their belongings in that moment and got out of Jerusalem and, and moved on to safer pastures, to safer territories. They could have also called a planning meeting. I think this is what most would have done in the contemporary church. There's persecution. There's threats. Let's form a committee. Let's call together a planning meeting to organize and to strategize about how we might respond to the threat that is before us. Let's gather all the smart people in the church and let's get them together and let's come up with a plan. Call the board, call the secretary of the board, get this board together and let's come up with a plan for how we're going to respond to the threats that are before us. But they didn't party, they didn't panic, and they didn't plan. They prayed. They prayed. I will forever be struck at the very moment of their coming together in these moments. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. Their first instinct was to pray. Gut reaction was to pray. Before we even now consider the content of their prayer, I want you to just linger with me for a moment. Their reflexive action to pray. Think of the things that we do instinctively and reflexively. Who has checked their Facebook in the last 10 minutes? All right, maybe not since you've, you've been in church. But, but think of the things that, that, we, that we easily just kind of resort to or fall back on in our lives? What are the things that we, that are our, what I kind of call our go-tos? You know, what, what's your go-to in a certain situation? And for many of us, truthfully, it is our phones. And you get a spare moment in the day or you want to create a spare moment in the day and you pull your phone out and you check your Twitter or your Facebook or your Instagram or your email or whatever it might be. And, and, and this is a go-to for so many people. Just a little bit of a blank spot. Or even in a hard time or whatever it might be, our, our, our phones, our, our social media has become our counselors. <laughs> the things that we go to. Maybe if you're anything like me, it's, uh, uh, it's Sports Center. I mean, that, that's my go-to. You know, at the end of the day, I need to kind of wind it down. I don't have a drink or, or you know, kick my animal or whatever it is. I just, I, I watch Sports Center, and, and, and this is my go-to in so many ways. What, what's your go-to? I mean, it could be 
any number of things that suddenly you have begun to realize, even as we speak here, that there's a sense in which at times of crisis or at times of just emptiness or at times of maybe it's a phone call to a friend, this is what you do instinctively. This is what you do reflexively. This is what you do. You flip on the TV, you listen to music, you eat. These are the habits. My question for us this morning is what would it look like for we as individuals, but more importantly as a church, to learn to pray instinctively, reflexively, automatically like these people in the book of Acts? That when we hear a report of any kind, really, a good report or a bad report, a challenging report, that our first instinct, our first reflex is to, is to gather together and to, to pray. To invite the Lord out of the stands and out of, off of the sidelines and into the action right with us. We need to pray that God would give us this kind of heart for prayer. We need to practice this kind of heart for prayer. The, the Moravians are a wonderful example of a community shaped by prayer. The Moravian Brethren, and many of us have never even heard of the Moravian Brethren. They're a group of Christians that still exist today, 750,000 strong around our world, but they, they have, have illustrated the power of corporate prayer throughout their existence. It was the early 1700s, a little history lesson for us. It was the early 1700s, the Protestant Reformation, when the Martin Luther led a, kind of an uprising against the, the Roman Catholic Church and began the, the Protestant movement. It was, the Reformation was kind of coming to an end, and actually now it had kind of gotten away from itself, and the groups that had broken away from the Roman Catholic Church were now splintering even farther and farther, and there was lots of division in the church. And it wasn't necessarily a a pretty sight. Early 1700s, Christians of various traditions, Catholics, Calvinists, Lutherans, and others, they all came to this estate in Moravia. Count von Zinzendorf. Say that with me, would you? It's just one of the greatest names in Christian history. Count von Zinzendorf. he, He was the owner. He was the... The, the leader of this estate and, and this group of, of Christians desiring unity came to him and they said, can we hang out? Can we camp out? Can we set up a village a shop on your land? And he said, come on, I believe in that kind of stuff. I want that kind of stuff. And so they came and they set up this village and this way of life and, and they were doing well. They purposed to live together in such a way that might model unified Christianity. They believed in Jesus' prayer from John 17 where he prayed for the, the, the oneness of God's people, the oneness of his followers, and that this would be a way by which the world might know that Jesus was truly the Son of God. And so they believed that in their unity they might proclaim a wonderful message to the world that Jesus really was who he said he was. And this worked well for a while. <laughs> But it wasn't long before this little settlement on Count von Zinzendorf's estate in Moravia was, uh, was at each other's throats, fighting just as badly as every other Christian group and every other human in that era, at each other's throats, arguing, divided once again. Von Zinzendorf himself and the other leaders it said they were heartbroken 
at what they were watching happen before them. So in desperation, von Zinzendorf and the other leaders called together the people, and they, they called them to a concerted effort in, in prayer. This would be the place. This would be the, the way that they would attempt to seek after that true unity that God longed for for them. Uh, they, they pray. They, they, their desire was to pray for a, a new Pentecost, a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit to heal their divisions and, and make them one. And in fact, it, it happened among this group. This, as it became known, this new Pentecost fell upon the Moravians as they gathered in that place and they prayed and they began to sense. There's different phrases that describe what went on, but it, it talk, historians talk about how this phrase that they learned to love one another it just kept ringing out in this community as they prayed. But, but a few things came out of this new Pentecost. A few things came out of this movement of the Moravians. One was that in that time, they instituted among their community a 24-hour prayer chain. That 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they would have two women and two men from their community praying. So an hour at a time, an hour at a time, a new two women and new two men would come on shift and they would pray continuously 24-7. And from, from Moravia, from Count von Zinzendorf's estate, they went out and planted new communities. And wherever the Moravians went, they started this same practice, 24-7 prayer, constant prayer in effect. And you may or may not believe me, but the Moravians, historians tell us, carried on this practice for 100 years. And in that time, this small, fledgling movement that never really has been big or gotten a whole lot of traction, they sent out, this is back in the 1700s, they sent out over 2,000 missionaries all around the world proclaiming the message boldly of Christ, the gospel message. And one of those missionaries they sent out was a guy named Peter Bowler, and Peter Bowler is important to us. You may not have heard of him, but Peter Bowler is important to us because he met a young, struggling missionary whose faith was sort of in the dumps because of the efforts that, that he had given and not seen God work. And he met him on a ship bound from the colonies back to London. And this young missionary's name was John Wesley. John Wesley, who became the father of the Methodist movement, the father of the Wesleyan revivals that swept across England, across all of the European continent, and made its way to the United States and gave birth to a movement within the Christian church that has proclaimed Christ beautifully and powerfully and that we stand as a part of as the Church of the Nazarene even today. I'm telling you, when communities of people commit themselves to prayer. And communities of people say, I don't care what happens in the next hundred years. We're going to pray. We're going to have two of us, and you ladies and two men, and whatever it looks like, we're going to pray and we're going to not stop praying. And out of that, there's going to be a unity and a love that grows and builds. And out of that, there's going to be missionaries that are sent. And out of that, there's going to be people who come to know Christ. And out of that, there's going to be revivals. 
that spread. Powerful things happen when communities decide to pray. If I, like Peter and John, had had a brush for the law, I think my prayer would have been for divine protection. (laughs) I think I would have prayed for that. Have you ever prayed for that hedge of protection? Yeah. Do you know? Do you even know what that is? Okay, some of you do. I, we watched, my family watched Over the Hedge this week, that movie. If you haven't seen it, I don't necessarily recommend it, but it was okay. And it's a big old hedge. You had to get over to get into the people's neighborhood to take their stuff. That was the movie. That's not the hedge of protection. The hedge of protection is what God just builds this hedge around us to protect us and preserve us and keep us and guard us and take care of us. And if I were like Peter and John and suffered the same persecution and trial and accusation that they have, I may have gone into my prayer closet privately and prayed for a, say it with me, hedge of protection. That's not what they did. These people didn't hunker down. They didn't dig out their, their, their bunkers. They didn't, they didn't huddle up into their, their holy huddles. They took a different tack. Instead of praying for protection, they began to pray for boldness and courage. This wasn't a, a shrinking back prayer by any means. It was a prayer of advance, a prayer of moving forward. They asked God to heal and to work signs and wonders in Jesus' name, to act in ways that only he could because they knew if he were to act like this, then the people would know that God was really on the scene. They would know that what these people had to say in their preaching was true. They prayed for God to do his work, and they would do theirs. We've all heard of paying it forward. I think we could call this praying it forward. What does it mean to pray it forward? I think it means to not necessarily pray about all the stuff that's happened in the past. It's okay if we need to. We need to pray about the hurts and the pains and the things. As Danny said last week, it's just perfect. God welcomes that and invites that and wants us to come to a place. But but maybe praying it forward means to to, to take the things as we've talked about before in, in our rear view mirror and to just hand those to God and instead to begin to pray about all the things that are coming before us in our windshield and to invite God to be at work in us and through us and for him simply to be at work however he wants to. As we move into the future, we assume, as these did, as Peter and John and the others, they assumed that God would take care of them. What was happening to them is what had happened to Jesus and what had happened to God before that. It had happened throughout history. David talked about it in Psalm 2. It was happening. The the rulers of the world were against God and his Messiah. And if they were against God and his Messiah, they would be against them as well. It was no surprise, but God would take care of them. So now let's think about what's next. So they prayed, and we pray because the work of the church is God's work, not ours. They prayed, oh sovereign God. Did you hear that? Maker of everything. You know, when we, when we don't pray, we act as if, essentially, we act as if it's all up to us. That the work of the church is up to our creativity and our ingenuity and our strength. When we pray, we accurately 
reflect the reality that the work of the church is up to God. I, I just been on two weeks of vacation and I've been thinking about you and this church and what we need to do and da 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 da. But this is not my work. This is not the board's work ultimately. This is not our work. This is God's work. And we have to be people who pray and invite Him to do that work. We pray because the work of the church is God's work, not ours. We pray because things happen when we pray. These people prayed for courage and boldness, and they got it. They prayed for miracles and the hand of God to be active, and it was. We pray because good things happen when we pray. But we also pray because prayer allows God to work on us. I love the, the results or the consequences of this prayer. I hope that you saw them. They, they finished praying, somebody said amen, and the place shook. And if you remember even from Elijah a few weeks back and one of the manifestations or one of the signs of a theophany, the presence of God, was an earthquake. And whether the place really shook like an earthquake or they felt it shake or whatever the case was, they experienced the very presence of God in that place as they prayed God's presence fell on them in a new and fresh way. It tells us that, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit in a new and fresh way. When we pray, the Holy Spirit fills us and infuses us and fuels us to do his work. We read as a result of their prayer that there was an increased sense of unity and a spirit of generosity. I quoted Ben Patterson earlier, and he's the chaplain out at Westmont, and uh, he wrote a book called Deepening Our Conversation with God, and I have another here from Ben. This is convicting. Churches can run without prayer. Whole denominations can run without prayer. The question is, is what they're doing worth doing if they can do it without prayer? Sadly, the term, you can take that down. The term first responders has become too close to us, tragically, really. I, I don't think I had ever heard the phrase or term first responders. Maybe I hadn't been paying attention, but maybe before Oklahoma City bombing is when I first began to hear that phrase. And many of you had heard that word. I, I looked it up. Its first use was in 1970, so it's been around for a long time. But I, I didn't really hear that phrase for a, a long time, first responders. But, but beginning there with me and then into a variety of other situations, 9-11, of course, and so many other experiences that our world has gone through over the years. We've heard this term more and more. And the first responders are those people that we honor. First responders are those people that we cherish. They're the people that, that go into a burning building, go into a... Uh, building that's collapsed. They go in where people have already died. They go in where there's great injury, where there's great horror, where there's great trouble. And they put their lives on the line. They, they are what the word says they are. They respond first. They don't wait. They respond first. And we honor them and we 
value them and we treasure them and we thank them. And some of you here in this room are or have been first responders in a variety of situations in our world. And to you, we're deeply grateful. It's, it's this phrase, really, that came to my mind over and over as I read this passage of Scripture this week and thought about the kind of character and, and tenacity and, and, and description that I would want to be known as myself and what I would want for our church to be known as as we think about the situations in our world, maybe not first response in terms of entering into that building, but first responders in, in prayer. I want to invite our community, I want to invite us to be people who, when we hear about things, to begin to train ourselves in new ways, not to reach for our phone or turn on the TV or call a friend, but to be people whose first response is to enter into prayer. And I want to be a person here who invites our community to, to be very mindful of those opportunities that, that we already have and those opportunities that we will need to create in order to become people who are more saturated with prayer. There's a group that meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 for a half an hour. We have a wonderful adult Sunday school class and youth and children, but there's a little engine room over here in my office that prays for a half an hour. And if you're not a part of one of these other gatherings, then, then I would invite you to make us find a bigger space for that prayer group. 9.15 to 9.45 every Sunday morning. It's a great time to pray. We, we gather once a month on the first Wednesday, and you've been hearing me say this for about three and a half years, by Count Zinzendorf's, by Count Zinzendorf's count, we only have 97 more years to listen to me talk about this, but we, uh, we, we gather the first Wednesday, and we've tried to make this as easy as possible for you. We do it at 6.30 in the morning and at noon and again at 5, and if we need to add another, like 9 or something, we can do that. We were trying to make a place and a space where you can come together as the body of Christ to, to pray. And there may be somebody here, even this morning, who's thinking, maybe that 24-7 thing could work. Maybe I'll start that. Well, let's think about that. But, but maybe there's another creative idea that's kind of hatching in your own thought about how we as a community might pray. I would invite you to share that, to pray about that, to think about how we do that. A fresh filling, greater unity, deeper generosity. We already prayed for our kids going back to school. We have a church board meeting this Saturday, a church board kind of retreat. It's going to be really important. It's going to be some important things that our church board talks about and prays about. Would you pray for us? We've got families that are in some, some crisis, some level of crisis here that I, I, that didn't stop while I was going on vacation. When I got back, I was reminded of these issues that are always before us. We have health issues. We have people facing some really difficult decisions. First responders. First responders. Let's stand together, can we? We invite our worship team to come.
And as they sing, we're going to sing a, a great song. It's a pretty powerful song. It's not really necessarily like a little kind of quiet, meditative song. <laughs> and that's okay. But I want to invite you, even as we sing this song, to really listen to the words and really think about how that might be sending us and propelling us, not only to be people of, of, of mission in terms of our action, but mission in terms of our prayer as well. And if there'd be some who would want to just come and gather here, it's hard for me to preach about a prayer meeting without inviting you to engage yourself in prayer at some further level. I know we've already done quite a bit of that this morning, but if you'd like to come and maybe some students as you go back to school, you appreciated my prayer earlier, but you need just a little bit of a deeper sense of God's presence. Maybe teachers, maybe you or your family are facing some sort of crisis or concern. Even as we sing this song, I just want to invite you to come and kneel. Maybe you just need the Lord's leading in some decision that you really don't know what to do about. And he wants to guide you. Would you just come and pray and kneel here and gather around each other? If someone comes, feel free to come after them and gather around them, put a hand on a shoulder. Let's just pray. But let's worship the Lord as we do. God, thanks so much. And we give this time, we give our worship, we give our hearts to you and it's funny maybe to pray about praying, but, but God, we ask you to stir something in us that maybe has never been stirred before and to wake something up in us that has been sleeping and to create in us a desire for you and a desire to, to get you off of the sidelines, out of the bleachers and into our lives in a fresh and powerful way. We pray because we want you to do the work. We pray because we know... Stuff happens whether we see it or not when we pray. We pray because we know that when we do, you do something new and fresh in us. And so we pray.